ಮುಂಜಲೀರಾನಸ್ಮಿ I prostrate with folded hands before Patanjali who benefited mankind by delivering yoga for mind grammar for speech and by removing impurities of the body through medicine So today we are going to enter into the new section of the Patanjali Yoga Sutra It's actually speaks of the practice that we always hear that yoga is ashtanga there are eight limbs of yoga yama niyama asana pranayama pratyahara dharana dhyana samadhi so these are the eight limbs of <coughs> yoga so now the yoga sutra is going to enter into that section which will be describing elaborately these eight limbs of yoga so first before entering that why these eight limbs of yoga is important that will be indicated in the 28th sutra that in the scriptures it is mentioned that without knowing the prayojana the purpose it is almost impossible to motivate even a fool for any activity if i have to motivate him i should know the purpose so why we should resort to the practice of the eight limbs of yoga so the 28 sutra speaks of the purpose the prayojana and then it will gradually enter into the limbs of the yoga so what's the 28 sutra speaking of 28 sutra of the second chapter of patanjali yoga sutra yoga anga anushthanat ashuddhi kshaye gyana dipti aviveka khyati aviveka khyate so what it is what is meant yoga anga anushthanat so by the practice of the different parts of the yoga the different limbs of the yoga yoga anga anga means the limbs anushthanat by practicing them what happens ashuddhikshay the impurities are destroyed that's the first thing ashuddhikshay gyana dipti and the knowledge becomes effulgent how how much effulgent that it goes on becoming effulgent till the attainment of viveka khyati a viveka khyate in sanskrit the prefix a is always used either in the sense of encompassment from the beginning till the end so in that sense or in the sense of completion so here in both the sense that viveka khyate actually indicates some particular practice that has to go on uninterruptedly till it becomes a realization so what actually is speaking 
that now if i say that we are actually the conscious principle the purusha totally disjoined from the prakriti we are just the witness of the prakriti we are in no way a part of the prakriti we don't own the prakriti so immediately you will say even a small child will say oh i understand but this understanding is just an intellectual understanding so what's the difference between intellectual understanding and the realization we will understand that any understanding which is mere intellectual it doesn't help us at the time of crisis when sitting in a very favorable condition we are listening to the class we are contemplating on it it gives a sense of upliftment it gives a sense of bliss a sense of joy and we somehow start feeling wow this is a very nice type of contemplation that i am detached from the body mind and the conscious principle just watching it all the changes that are going on is not me i am separate from it i am eternal i am always there this is just a phase i need not be overwhelmed by them it is just a phase just when i am going by tram if the co passenger sitting beside me is highly annoying what we do we simply with patience bear why we know it's a matter of two or three stations i will get down so whatever may be the uh, factor of annoyance I, i i just can easily i can easily simply overlook it why because it is not going to be with me throughout it is not going to be with me so here when i have that type of attitude that i am the self as the self i am eternal i was i am i will be nothing can annihilate me just because of my present association with the body mind complex is out of ignorance i think that all this change is happening to me but actually it is not happening i'm separate from it i'm disjoined from it and it is very temporary it's a matter of two three stations this annoyance factor will be there it's gone after that i am relieved it itself gives such a what you say that a feeling of alleviation lightness and sometimes it gives us a conviction wow this is the knowledge with which i will equip myself and face the challenges of life and the very next moment we find when we are really in the crisis moment the challenging situations of life not in the meditation hall not in the satsang but we are facing the challenges of the life we find this intellectual knowledge is of no help we thought that it is going to help us we find that we are again in that same groove that knowledge we somehow cannot incorporate we find it is no way working in that situation when i try to intellectualize the thought is in my mind but it is no way helping me to transform my psyche and to maintain the calmness i find i am agitated so this is a mere intellectual knowledge what's the realization realization is something that if you really understand that it is a projection that for that it's a matter of just one moment that we say that by assiduous practice at last we get established in yoga but all those practices just to take us to the realization just for a moment a flash after that when we come back we are a changed person that as 
in the some previous classes we tried to understand with the help of that example that a small child for the first time is going to watch the movie and the father is explaining what the movie is that there will be a huge screen on the hall and through the projector the light will be projected the light and shade will be projected in such a way through the reel that the screen will get enlivened as if the life is being enacted there and it becomes so lively but it's a mere projection and it's all happening on the background on the screen now as the child for the first time is going to watch the movie and they were a bit delayed the movie has already started now the child is sitting by the side of the father and the movie has started now the first question the child asks so where is the screen you told that there will be a screen the father says it's just in the front on where on what you are seeing this the all the things have got enlivened now the sin of mahabharata was going on as the father pointed to the screen with his finger the child saw that the, uh, the krishna is sitting on the chariot instructing arjuna the bhagavad gita so seeing krishna he asked is he the screen the father says no it's behind that and he sees arjuna is sitting behind krishna then he has oh then arjuna is the screen no son it is something the background of all this the son goes on asking he was pestering his father oh then the chariot you mean the chariot is the screen the all the warriors we see in the background is that the screen the sky the father couldn't explain he was so much annoyed that he was pestering him couldn't understand what he meant and now there was the interval the interruption all the projection stopped the screen was palpably visible and now when the movie started now the child was sitting quietly he has caught the realization now there is no need for explanation he has understood what that screen is so our spiritual journey is just to get that interval once you get that interval now your play is done you know what's the everything that's the on the background of it unless you have seen it then what's our condition is another story funny story that the same a person is going to watch the movie for the first time a simple person from the village has no knowledge about the movie and the same instruction was given same uh, information was given that this is a mere projection what you see in the screen is a mere projection it's not real with this idea he goes to watch the movie and he has the idea that sitting in the front seat he can see the movie uh, much better so he's almost in the first row to watch the movie and there's a sin of the the, the sin is of a chasing elephant the elephant has got mad it is chasing and this man gets scared he gets up from the seat and starts running towards the exit the so all just starts pacifying him why are you just running go and take your seat and this man then just immediately says can you can't you see that the elephant is chasing and then all these these people started telling oh it is a mere projection why are you so afraid of but this man was really quite wise he replied you understand that it is a projection i also understand but does the mad elephant understand that it is a projection 
So it doesn't understand. So that's the condition when we have just mere intellectual knowledge, not the realization. We hear Vedanta, we hear yoga philosophy, that I am the Atman, I am the Brahman, I am the Purusha principle, apart, bereft of all association with the phenomenon existence, go back to my home and find that some of my family members for as if for without any reason is shouting at me that why you waste your time with all the satsangs and all uh, you are of no use and immediately I lose my temper. Why? Because the one who is shouting at me like the mad elephant has become real. I forgot that it is also a projection. So till the realization happens, our condition is like the person who is running, seeing the mad elephant. So this is the difference between intellectual knowledge and the realization. Realization is something which happens in a flash and then you are a total changed person. You have overhauled your personality. And that's being indicated in this sutra. That when we hear the scripture for the very first time, an intellectual conviction develops. But unless we go through the practice of these eight limbs of the, of the yoga, there cannot be the purity, the ashuddhikshaya, that won't happen. The mind has to be purified of all its entanglements. Then only that realization, that interval can come, only then. So the yoga anga has to be practiced for purification of the mind. And the more the mind gets purified, the more the knowledge illumines your mind. That the knowledge which was mere intellectual, more and more it starts going to the depth of your realization. It becomes something effulgent. Till the viveka khyati is not the intellectual knowledge, still that real realization dawns in. So that's why this sutra is giving the prayojana. So that in the previous sutra, <clears throat> they spoke of viveka khyati. And now we may be deluded by thinking, oh, it's just that intellectual understanding that we all have. Now to make us convinced of the fact that without the practice, there cannot be real spiritual illumination. They, to motivate us to adopt this ashta anga, the eight uh, limbs of yoga in our life, this prayojana has been spoken of. This entire sutra in one line <coughs> can be explained in the words of Ramakrishna. That Ramakrishna used to say very nicely, Sri Ramakrishna, Tablar bol mukhe bala shahoj hate anakotin. So we have actually cited this example so many times that when you are learning tabla for Krishna, for the first time the teacher comes and he repeats, he just speaks out the rhyme. Tadhinna, dhadhinna, tahatereketi, dhatereketi. And asks you to repeat. You immediately memorize it. It doesn't take even, a, even one minute. You memorize it and you just spell it out. Now the teacher says, bring it in your hand. So now it will take most probably months. It's not that easy to bring it in your hand, to really play it. So that's what Ramakrishna is saying. Tablar bol mukhe bala shahoj. That I am the Atman, I am the Brahman. It's so easy to say. But unless it goes to a realization, we have internalized it. We have made it a working principle. 
it's of no use and that's the real challenge that's the kutin that's the thing which is challenging so discriminative knowledge can be intellectually apprehended through the scriptural knowledge the shruti and also we can infer about it the inferential knowledge even when the afflictions of avidya ignorance they are still in my mind i can have an intellectual apprehension but such intellectual knowledge is of no use as in no way it helps us spiritually hence the latency is the samskaras of avidya must be weakened through the practice of the yogangas is all these angas and then only that real discriminative knowledge gets clearer <clears throat> and subsequently what will happen that through engrossment acquired through samadhi the viveka khyati will become resplendent and such resplendent uh, discriminative knowledge is termed as a jnana dipti that it becomes resplendent now the knowledge is bereft of all impurities it is shining in your mind always there is no chance of any uh, speck of impurity or ignorance to creep into your mind so that's the thing that prayojana after saying the prayojana now the yogas in the 29th sutra will speak speak of <clears throat> the eight limbs the eight angas the eight uh, practices of yoga so what are they the 29th speak, sutra speaks of that yama niyama asana pranayama pratyahara dharana dhyana samadhi yama yama means restrain niyama means observation it's like just like gardening when in the garden you are gardening first what you do you have to get rid of the weeds that's like the restrain that there are so many my, my inclinations of the mind obsessions to certain extent i have to restrain them that is removing the weeds and then that's not sufficient i now have to sow the seeds the flowers which has to bloom in my garden which i desire the them to be uh, to bloom so those seeds i have to sow so those those are the observances what you have to observe they are the niyama so yama and niyama actually speaks of that weeding the your the garden of mind and sowing this desirable seeds are the observance the niyama and then comes the asana we will take up each of these practices elaborately as we follow the sutras asana is asana doesn't in yoga sutra doesn't mean all the various postures nowadays we know as yoga they are having some therapeutic effect those all various postures help us to have the real asana which has been spoken of here that when i sit for meditation the biggest hindrance is the bodily movement the body and mind are geared you will find even in your day to day life when your mind is very restless you cannot sit quietly you you have to get up you have to pace up and down or even when you are sitting your legs are all shaking you are violently shaking your legs all those things will go on it's it happens almost conjointly if the mind is disturbed i cannot keep my body calm but when i'm relaxed my body also is motionless so the yoga they found that as these two are riveted as these two are geared so i can take the help of this mechanism how that even when my mind is restless 
I willfully try to keep it motionless, calm. And you will find as the body is geared with the mind, the way the disturbed mind makes my body restless. Similarly, if I willfully keep my body calm, that has an effect on the mind as they both are related. The mind calms down. To give a common example, our body is like a vessel and our mind is like the water in the vessel. Your mind, your body is like a cup and the mind is like the water in the cup. If you move the cup, immediately the water will also be agitated. If you keep the cup still, the water will be still. So asana here, all the asanas we practice, apart from having its therapeutic effect, as far as spiritual life is concerned, that when we sit for meditation, a little movement can immediately bring you down 10 steps. Suppose your mind is engrossed, you are enjoying that engrossment, focus, and for some reason, your body starts aching as you are not habituated and you move a little. Know it for certain. If you have a really that, if you have a focus, if you are aware of the working of the mind, you will find immediately that focus as if uh, falls, as there's a fall upon that focus by steps together. Shankaracharya used to give a very nice example that what's the yoga like? It's like climbing the steps with a golaka, with a ball in your hand. At each and every step, you are very cautious that this ball shouldn't fall from my hand. I have to take it to the terrace, to the terrace, I have to take it. And now what happens with all your caution, you're almost reaching the terrace and then you trip in one step because of your carelessness and the ball falls from your hand. Will the ball stay in the step in which it has fallen? No, it will just roll from where you started. All your effort is gone. So again, you have to start from there. So asana actually means that, that you have to be very gradual practice. You have to have bit asana siddhi. That once I sit for asana, the body shouldn't be stiff. With stiff body, you will be stressed out. That can never give you yoga. At the, it should be relaxed, but at the same time, it should be motionless. So as we come to the sutras, we will study it in details. So the third practice is that asana. Just as the body and the mind is riveted, similarly, our breath and the mind also is riveted. So the next practice is the pranayama. You will find that when my mind is restless, then what happens? I will find my breath becomes, my breathing becomes shallow and irregular. There is no rhythm. When I'm relaxed, the breath automatically is deep and it's rhythmic. So this is the riveting between the mind and your breath, the prana shakti. So the yoga has taken the help at the very beginning as these two are riveted. With the mind, the breath, pattern of the breath changes. Why not use the breath to calm down the mind? So that's the science behind the yoga. So when at the beginning, I'm just in the foundation steps, take this physical means to calm down the mind. Make the body motionless to calm down the mind, motionless at the same time, relaxed. Make the breathing rhythmic. So here also, Pranayama doesn't mean all the pranayamas which have therapeutic use, which we know as such, is instructed by the yoga teachers. They are good. They help us to improve our health. 
and they help us during meditation to have this rhythmic breathing at that time i need not practice kapalbhati and all that will never give me meditation <clears throat> but through all those practices my breath has become very spontaneous the lung capacity has increased without any effort without any stress i can breathe deeply and rhythmically at the time of meditation that's what the pranayama is speaking of it's not all those <clears throat> breathing exercises which we do at other times so this rhythmic breathing deep breathing that calms down the mind <clears throat> so i have taken care of all my what you say that uh, obsessions compulsions through yama through niyama i have started culturing some positive things by which my mind remains focused and then i'm taking the help of asana and pranayama to calm down the mind and when you are breathing regularly breathing you are breathing rhythmically deep breathing with a rhythm and you are sitting motionless now for meditation you have to now take care of the mind asana pranayama is all physical so this now the next limb goes to the mind after taking care of the physical things the next is pratyahara so even when your breath is very rhythmic willfully you are making it a rhythmic breathing deep breathing body is motionless you will find that our the greatest enemy is the mind now if i try to keep it focused either on some uh, ishta or on my breath or in some particular feeling we are not bothered on what you are keeping it focused it may be on your breathing also you will find it's so difficult as i have never trained my mind very easily even uh, uh, without my awareness i don't know when the mind has slipped out it has gone to some other thoughts <clears throat> if we really speak out our thoughts we are all mad what's the difference between a mad person and us we don't speak out what we are thinking a mad person speaks out but if we speak out what we are thinking we are also mad so incongruous thoughts unconnected uh, thoughts one after the other is coming to the mind if you speak out anybody will say that you are deranged the only difference between a mad person and us is that we just don't speak out our mind but the mind is really mad so easily it gets distracted pratyahara is not to get fed up with that persistently bring it back again and again is just like the mother is observing the child the child is playing uh, most probably the mother wants the child to sit and just read some book and he will find it so difficult in no time the child will be restless this book has been kept aside is busy with playing with some ball and the mother what she says she is she won't scold her she will just say well i am seeing you i am looking at you and immediately when she says that immediately the child again comes back to the focus the mother is looking comes back to the focus so here also pratyahara means that it's not struggling with the mind fighting with the mind just say i am observing and you will find it's again and again coming back so these are the subtle points we should answer the pratyahara means now i start fighting with the mind what we do our meditation is like you know 
We never give the responsibility to the mind. Our meditation is like this: that I hire a cab, and when when I get up on the cab, my duty is just to say the cab driver my destination. Now it's his responsibility to take me there. But if I constantly go on instructing from behind, take right turn, take left turn, there is a steep. If in the olden days, you know that the gear system was there, change your gear, apply brake. What will happen in no time? The driver will stop the car by the side of the road, and with folded hands will request you please get down. That's what we do, and that's what happens with our meditation, because we take the pratyahara. Uh, in that sense, that as if constantly we have to fight with the mind. If you go on giving instructions, that's not pratyahara. Give the, at, the, at the very beginning of meditation, I tell my mind, see, be focused on such and such thing, and now just go on observing. Don't disturb it. Don't go on constantly giving instructions. Just just observe, and you would find gradually the mind though gets distracted. Again and again, it is coming back to its meditation. So this is the pratyahara. So this when you get pratyahara, your through pratyahara, your mind gets stable to certain extent. Then comes the dharana. So you can hold dharana. Dharana comes from the word dharana. I can hold onto a thought. But at the very beginning, quality of that holding the thought is not that great. To give an example. you know when a picture is of low resolution if you enlarge it you can see the dots means resolution is what dpi dots per inch is the resolution if the dots are very close very intense it looks like a that's continuous as a line picture a sketch you don't see the dots so when my recollectedness the so frequency at the very beginning is very low it's like having a low dpi low resolution so though my mind is focused but the intensity of focus is very low so that's the dharana when the intensity of focus increases your dpi is increasing like when as if in a picture the way the dpi increases the resolution increases when your this frequency of the fo- the thought on which your focus is increases with your more and more absorption that dharana gets converted into dhyana just in your mind you're trying to visualizing you try to visualize your ishta at the beginning you find it's your mind is getting distracted again and again you're trying to willfully bring it back that is pratyahara and then you start as if getting a mental picture but it is very vague it's not going away it's staying but it's very vague that is dharana and when through a more practice you find this image is becoming more and more tangible something as if standing in my presence as if something palpably a living entity because the intensity of my meditation has increased so it has become dhyana after that comes samadhi now what is samadhi now when i am having intense meditation i feel the presence as a like a something a palpable presence but still the idea is there this i who am contemplating and this is the object of my contemplation these three distinctions remain when the focus goes on increasing a time comes when suddenly you feel that you have become one with the object of meditation that i am meditating that falls off how it happens to give a very common example see when 
I am focused, what happens? The mind has a limited power of processing information. When I am not that focused, I'm talking to you. If someone calls me, I hear. Why? By talking to you, a small part of my mind is required. The remaining mind is free to take care of other activities. So when I'm talking, someone calls, I hear. Now, when I'm just watching my most favor favorite game on the TV, and now someone calls, I don't hear. He's calling loudly my name, I don't hear. Why? To keep the mind focused, more part of my mind has to be engaged. Mind has a limited power of processing information. So as the more part of mind is engaged there, very little of my mind remains to take care of other activities. So someone calls, I don't hear. A pain, and it's, if it's still more engrossed, say a painter is drawing throughout the night, fully focused. He forgets that he's tired. He forgets that he needs sleep. He forgets that he has to take food. There's so much engrossment that all that the part of the mind, which like the biological alarm says that it is a time for taking food. You're hungry, it's you're tired, go for rest. It's all biological alarms. That alarm system has also fall, has fallen off because more part of your mind is now engrossed in that object. So there's no the mind left to take care even of your bodily activities. You have reached the state of videha. Though you are in body, you don't feel the body. At last, what's the samadhi? But still the distinction that this is the thing on which I'm contemplating. At last, a little part of your mind is required to keep your ego intact, that I am, the who is me, this body-mind complex. For that, a little part of your mind has to take care of your psychophysical existence with the idea of identification. When the focus becomes too intense, even that much mind is not available for keeping the ego intact. The total mind has been taken away by the object of concentration. It's a tremendous in, uh, intensity. The DPI has become so high, it has become like a line. You cannot see the dots anymore. Then what happens? The ego falls off. It's the ego which says, I am meditating. I am the one who is meditator. This is the object of meditation and we are connected to the process of meditation. So when the ego is taken off, this three distinction collapses. It's called Triputi Bheda. And that leads to Samadhi. You become one with the object of meditation. And when that happens, then that real ego falls off. So you have understood that, that the focus at last falls of the ego. When the ego has fallen off, it immediately takes you to the realization that what you are, that constantly because of ego, I was conjoined with the psychophysical existence that falls off. You take this to the ultimate realization. And then that's the proper Viveka Khyati. So now you will understand that what the yoga is speaking of. Through these eight steps, you have to internalize through this practice, that intellectual knowledge has to be internalized, has to be made one with my nature. As Swami Vivekananda used to say, that spirituality or knowledge is not gathering of information. Nowadays, you will find that gathering information is so easy because of the internet. Anything you can just search in the internet, you get. So gathering information is not the knowledge that internet does. What Swami is saying, that take up one idea, leave it, dream it, let it pass through your veins, assimilate it, 
let it become a part and parcel of your life. That's the real way of acquiring knowledge. He used to give the example of that the mollusk, which converts, uh, which actually uh, makes the pearls. Do you know how the pearls are made? That particular type of mollusk, when it gets irritated with the sand particle, it will dive deep along with the sand particle on the bed of the river, and it will start salivating on the irritant, the sand particle, it will start salivating. And in time, that saliva gets, what is this, uh, condensed, or gets saturated, and it gets converted into pearl. So entire spiritual journey is like that. Take the mantra which has been given to you, say one idea, and just dive deep, go on salivating, contemplating on it, till it transforms, till it gets converted into pearl. So that's the thing which has been spoken of. And that's the practice, which is more important. It's not just the intellectual knowledge. So now the Yoga Sutra, one by one, will take up all the limbs and discuss. So first, you will take up the Yama. Now Yama has five practice and Niyama has another five practice. So this five plus five are 10. So as we know, in all the Abrahamic religion, they speak of 10 commandments. So sometimes we find that many will be comparing this five yama and five you know, these 10 practices as the 10 commandments of yoga. But know it for certain, there's a difference. It is not exactly the commandments. In the Abrahamic religions, the commandments are actually what? The do's and don'ts, which has something to do with your deliverance. If you observe what has been commanded to you, you go to heaven. If you transgress, you go to hell. So in that sense, yama and niyama are not the commandments. It's actually more it's, it's a way of life which promotes inner and outer peace. You will find that for practicing yoga, first, that calmness has to be there. All the turbulence has to be stopped. All the disturbances, external disturbances and the mental disturbances has to be calmed down. So then only you can think of practice. So here, it's they are not concerned with the right and wrong in absolute sense. There is no thought of heaven or hell in the absolute sense when I'm speaking of Yama and Yama. They are rather the invitations to act in ways that promote inner and outer peace and bliss. So that's the real purpose. They create harmony within us and in our relationship to the environment and to others. So first comes the Yama, the restraints. There are five restraints which has been spoken of in Yoga Sutra. In the 30th Sutra, they speak of those five restraints. What are they? Ahimsa, Satya, Asteya, Brahmacharya, Aparikraha. First is Ahimsa, non-injury. Satya, truthfulness. Asteya, the third, is non-stealing. Brahmacharya, continence. Aparigraha, non-acceptance of gifts, non-receiving. So these are the restraints. A, the one who wants to be a yogi, he should have the spiritual foundation with his restraints. So what actually ahimsa means? Generally, whenever we speak of ahimsa, immediately the thought of our food comes. That taking the vegetarian food, 
and now it is even still uh, one step further to be a vegan is ahimsa so it's to certain extent of course ahimsa but that is only in the secondary sense why is it the secondary sense because you have not taken care of the mind it is just external some observances of not killing of not harming other animals but most our majority of our life we live in the mind physical things are just a small part if you if you just uh, try to see that how much part of your life actually is mental is has to do with the mind and if in the ahimsa that is not taken care of this secondary details doesn't help us much so what real ahimsa means the real ahimsa means it speaks of relinquishing hatred we shouldn't be hating anyone because at last you will find that hatred is disturbing you and with that disturbance you cannot think of going to the higher rungs of meditation so it is relinquishing hatred hostility anger all these negative emotions as long as you are disturbed by them you are not practicing ahimsa in its real sense so we might not be physically violent or verbally abusing others so they say ahimsa has to be practiced in three stages kaya mana vakya so physically i am not harming others through my speech i am not verbally abusing anyone but mana what about the mind i have taken care of kaya and the vakya of my physical and the verbal aspect of non violence but what about the mind that has to be taken care of so so for that so but we might be harboring enmity that i am not physically harming anyone i am not abusing but in my mind i am harboring enmity or having a feeling of hatred or jealousy towards the neighbor neighbor towards the coworker or even towards the, sometimes we find that there is a tremendous hatred towards the government as a yogi those are the things at the beginning we have to relinquish so ahimsa in true sense is to constantly watch the mind and without such negative emotions and you have to at its nip you have to without thereby not allowing them to breed in the fertile soil of the mind you don't allow them that's the very first practice so all the practice actually speaks of serenity of the mind and ahimsa is not only the first is the foremost all other practices are dependent upon it if i can practice ahimsa just in its totality you will find all other uh, this restraints and all other observances are automatically followed that much important is ahimsa so it has to be practiced in kaya mana vakya in your speech in physically through your verbally as well as in the mind the mind is the primary aspect other things can be easily taken care of but the struggle is with the mind so there constantly we have to be vigilant that the sign of purity is vigilance in english we say that we have to be vigilant that whether the mind is fooling us or not so we find i still remember that someone told maharaj i work in such and such farm and the owner of this the owner of this farm are so called they are very religious they have built so many temples they are rich person the entire country knows them to be very very pious person but i am horrified why 
Now to expand their business, sometimes they have to grab the land of some small uh, businessman, some small, uh, what do you say that a tea stall is a tea stall is in such a location that if I had a huge, uh, what do you say the showroom there, I could have really enhanced my business. Now the one who is having the tea stall, he's not ready to give away that place. Even if I give him lure with money, he's not ready. Then what? Somehow he has to be removed. So all those files, who has to be contacted, who has to be removed. So they have the laptop with the photo of Ganesha at the beginning, but behind that Ganesha, all those files are there. That how that person has to be removed, how the violence has to be done. So, so that type of Ahimsa at present, especially in India, we find a lot. All are having the this garb of religion and so much of that hatred, violence, everything is going on in the mind beneath. So that in no way is Ahimsa. Just by taking non that vegetarian food and non-vegetarian food, just segregating that. What about this mind, that polluted mind, which we are not taking care of? In that way, we can never just be steadfast in ahimsa. So that mind is the major part. We have to take care of that. There shouldn't be any hatred, any sense of hostility, anger, or any negative emotions. And then comes the satya, the truthfulness. So again, we think that merely speaking the truth, that's what is meant by satya. But no, the very first thing in our scripture has been told, Satyam Bruyat, Priyam Bruyat. Speak the truth, but at the same time, it should be pleasant. It should not be harsh. Why? Know it for certain. When you are harsh, you may feel I am speaking the truth bluntly. I do not know how to pacify it. I am a very straightforward person. Know it for certain. It is never the truth. You will say, how? Just I will give a common example. Suppose the child at house because of their mischief does something silly and you get angry and you say, you are stupid. You're extremely harsh. And you may think I have told the correct thing, such a silly act he has done. You are actually not speaking the truth. Why? Because the scripture will say he's the Atman. He's not stupid that this stupidity is just a, a temporary phase. He can easily get rid of it. It is not which defines him. When someone steals, I say him a thief. It is a, it is a false statement. He's not a thief. He has committed theft. That doesn't mean through eternity he's going to be thief. So harsh truth is never true. Through eternity, when I say you are such and such, you are a thief, you are a murderer, you are a rapist, you are a, a dirty child or whatever it may be. These are all false statement because I am that eternal pure principle. I was, I am, I will be. These all somehow because of ignorance, I'm passing through a stage where all this somehow has smeared me. The dirt has smeared me. I can easily wash them off. It doesn't define me. I don't own them. So whenever you're speaking the harsh truth, know it for certain, it is not the truth. So that's why they have told that satyam bruyat, priyam bruyat. So if truth is not pleasant, it is not the truth. So the difference between reprimanding a child for doing something silly by telling him stupid 
and by telling him that you that you never expected such a silly thing there's a difference i could the same thing i could have told how that you are such a nice child how come you do such a silly thing see there's a difference first you told him is stupid the same thing you can be told in a different way that you are such a nice child that's even in the bhagavad gita the same thing when arjuna was lost his what you say that that the urge to fight because of all those uh, what is the emotions was overwhelmed seeing his own relative with the battle field then krishna what he's saying that it doesn't befit you means i have a very high opinion about you that i it doesn't befit you i never thought that such thing can happen so then what happens that when you say it in that pleasant way immediately it actually is uh, entailing a big uh, difference in the approach that person will take towards his own life in english they say very nice thing that if you treat a person as he or she is he or she remains as he or she is if you treat a person as he or she should be he or she transforms into what he or she should be so that's how we say so that's the very important thing so satyam bruyat priyam bruyat so this takes care of the objective side of the truth when i am saying some some to someone else how should i speak it should be pleasant but there is a subjective side that sometimes we speak the untruth as if to save ourselves we may fall in a very false situation to save ourselves we speak the untruth and we feel now that i am saved uh, i need not bother about uh, that a little um, lie or little untruthfulness we have taken to it has actually helped me that little compromise is okay but in yoga when you are a yogi that compromise actually speaks a lot about the disturbance of the mind why the moment you the subject what is the subject side of side of speaking the truth because the falsehood has no legs once you speak a false if you just resort to falsehood and someone questions you and you find that you may be caught you have to invent another falsehood the falsehood has no leg to establish a falsehood you must it must you must make it stand on another falsehood which in turn needs another and so on so they all have to st- stand in cr- crutch truth always is falsehood has to be created and as a result what's happening you have to memorize very interesting you will find it in the world of politics something has happened and you just with the media will go to the political person and ask that what has happened they will say no at party we uh, we have a party meeting and after that we will give that press our press release will be there so in the party meeting it will be decided <laughs> what has to be told so you have to create we have to create the propaganda has to be this all these are propaganda you have to create it falsehood has to and then you have to memorize that's why it is in the written paper because you know that if you are just speaking out some you may speak something apart from what is being you have planned to speak so just see it all speaks of lot of concern you cannot be carefree truth is you need not have to memorize you just because the truth is gets ingrained in your psyche you don't have to memorize whenever once you if you if you've done something wrong if you say it it's over it's over there whatever consequences you have to face you face it's over there so 
truthfulness always makes you carefree. Falsehood makes you careworn. With a careworn mind, how can you think of meditation? That suppose in my office, in my work, I had to resort to some falsehood. My mind is disturbed and I think, let me meditate because someone has told me that meditation comes from the mind. Can you think you can meditate? In the meditation constantly, like the, what you say that the rust from within, it will be that thought will be rusting you because I may be caught. I may be caught, I have resorted to it. I may be caught, this thought will be constantly disturbing you. So how can you think of meditation? So subjectively, we should not resort to falsehood. Objectively, when I'm dealing with other, I should not be harsh in the name of speaking the truth. So it should be pleasant. And also from my own life, I have to keep it as transparent as possible. If we really want to progress in yoga, for other things, it's all okay. I manage with my life very well by compromising a tidbit of it. Okay, that's very good with our day-to-day life. But if we want to be a yogi, if we really want to progress spiritually, there shouldn't be any compromise there. So that's the thing which has been indicated by the satya. Satya, satya actually means that truth. It is not just mere speaking the truth. It has far deeper, uh, what you say, this implications. And after the satya, the next practice is asteya. With this, we will stop our discussion today. There's non-stealing. So again, by we think that by refraining from stealing stuff like others' valuables or positions, we can practice us there. It is again that not easy. In our life, we will find we steal so many things, knowingly, unknowingly. We steal others' time by being let, not being punctual. We steal others' time. We steal others' energy. Suppose in your in the family, you are supposed to share some work, and you are lazy, and you just take it for granted. Oh, my partner, my wife will take care of it. You steal others' energy by not just executing what has been delegated to you. In a teamwork, you don't take the responsibility. You steal others' energy by not executing the delegated responsibilities. You steal others' time by not being punctual. We steal others' happiness by being unnecessarily rude and untruthful. All the family violence we hear. That's so much of rudeness and untruthfulness. Both are involved. That sometimes we are not truthful to our relations. So that is also stealing. You're stealing others' happiness. We are stealing others' happiness by being rude, by being untruth towards others. And of course, we steal others' ideas. There's a plagiarism we speak of. That is also a big issue nowadays. And the biggest theft we do is the society which has educated us, which has made us a, what's a, a adult with all, what you say, there's all our capacities with all our skills. And now I think only of myself, nothing to give away, give back anything to the society. That's the biggest theft. We commit theft when we take something from the society and don't pay it back. Our education, our career is a gift of the society, which we should pay back by becoming a responsible citizen or else it's a major theft. So you will find that not a single of this practice is just as simple as we think them. Just with a few, a few physical practices we do and we just try to pose that I'm a holy person. It's not that easy. 
it actually entails a, a major the major portion of it entails the disciplining of the mind and that's the challenge it's not that easy so as we go through this we will come to the other this other two uh, this the yama uh, that's uh, brahmacharya and aparigraha will again take up in the next class uh, before we proceed to the next practice the niyama so with this we stop our discussion today we will continue with our discussion on this ashtanga yoga in the next class with this we conclude today's class thank you all namaskar namaskar thank you swamiji namaskar namaskar namaskar